chinesisches Tor. Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD title. Und zwar ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Wachstum. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen sich. Hi, it's Michelle. Hey, this is Ted, and welcome back to Spaßbremse. We are joined today by Alex Brentler, um, our first actual returning guest, so congratulations on that title, and Lauren Ballhorn, both of Jacobin. Um, Alex writes mostly for the German edition, and some of his work has appeared um, translated into the English version, and Lauren has written for both the English and German versions, as well as Catalyst magazine, which is affiliated with them. Um, hey guys, how you doing? Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having hey. us. Thanks for having us. So we're here to dive a little bit deeper into the results of the election. Um, you know, we gave an overview of it last week with some of the guys from Corner Spatey, but we really want to dive a little deeper into one issue in particular, uh, one party in particular, Die Linke, the left party, um, of which, uh, you know, I think we are all either members or sympathetic to. And so this is sort of an issue near and dear to our hearts. And I think it's very important to analyze what happened to the party in the most recent election on Sunday, the 26th, and kind of think about what the way forward is for that party. Uh, both Lauren and Alex have written really great pieces in Jacobin about the predicament that Die Linke is in and why it had its vote share drop by about half from the previous election and just barely scrape into parliament this time. Lauren wrote a really prescient piece back in the spring about the party's lack of strategy, and Alex recently had a kind of post-election analysis about how the party has lost touch with its traditional social base. I'll just continue with a kind of recap of these abysmal election results. Um, the link had dropped below the 5% mark to 4.9%, only securing its 39 seats in parliament because it reached the minimum three direct mandate seats in Berlin-Lichtenberg, Berlin-Treptow-Köpenick, and Leipzig-2. The three candidates that held on to their direct mandate seats are Gesine Lötsch, Gregor Gysi, and Søren Pellmann. That puts the party at a loss of 30 seats since 2017. I would love to hear your immediate reactions on election night. Well, I mean, to be honest, I was not expecting four point something or comma something. Um, but I wasn't expecting much more than that. So I was surprised, um, but not nearly as devastated as a lot of other people I've talked to in the days since from the party were. I think there was a pretty strong sense among a lot of the party faithful, if you will, that it wasn't going to be a great night, but we were going to get 6% plus something and would easily coast back into the parliament. We'd take some losses, but we would have another... Uh, you know, another four years to figure out what we're doing wrong. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely disappointed. I'm very concerned, but I wasn't particularly surprised or shocked. Yeah, I mean, it was it was similar uh, for me. Um, I I didn't expect uh, 4.9% either. Generally, like there wasn't a single poll that gave the party less than 6%, except for one that came out like two days before the election. And I just assumed that you know, the polls were roughly right for Die Linke last time around. So, yeah, 
six, six point five percent, something like that. That said, when when the first exit polls uh, were announced, it's not like I was surprised either. Like I, I expected a pretty bad result, just not this bad. And I mean, they were teetering on the edge of five percent throughout the night, and then we had our live show that night, and we got to talk to some people within the party and they told us that they were pretty confident about uh, winning three seats so um, that took a little bit of the pressure off but it really it started to sink sink in that night and really only the morning after like what a disaster that was and um, also the wider implications just for you know the government formation and for how the the political landscape is going to look from here on out if, if they don't turn this around very quickly. So I'm, I mean, I'm a party member. Um, I'm not sort of a, a diehard supporter in the sense that I don't pour my heart and soul in, into the Linke. I mean, I pay my dues and that's about it. But it's, um, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a good situation in Germany if, if we have one decent party on the left that gets less than 5%. Um, I think for the whole left, uh, no matter where you stand in particular, it's just not a good situation to be in. And I'm very concerned about it, too. Yeah, we kind of saw in the immediate aftermath, like the I think it was Monday morning, this very somber press conference with Linke leaders Dietmar Bartsch, uh, Susanne Henning-Wessel and Janine Wissler. And they're attributing the loss in vote share to deeper divides within the party, not just mistakes made in this very election. Visla mentions the structural problems, emphasizes the need to work on public image, saying, quote, we want to be seen as the party of social justice, the party of renters, the party for consequent climate protection. And Dietmar Bartsch also made it clear that the root causes of this loss are years in the making, like I said, and he alludes to the party not presenting a united front. You know, the first reporter to ask a question immediately names the elephant in the room, um, asking if the Linke leaders had spoken with Sarah Wagenknecht following the results before kind of speaking about the future of the party. Henning Wessel stressed the need for Linke to like reflect and look back on the Wahlkampf, the election campaign, and quote, like, turn over every stone, she said. It sure seems like there are a lot of stones to turn over, a lot of trümmer, like this pile of debris to pick through. Could one of you give us maybe the latest internal developments? Because that was like right the day after. Yeah, and I think, Alex, you you put this well, and I'm curious if you could expand more. I think in your piece, you describe the result as kind of the worst of both worlds because you know, it was such a poor result on its own. And yet the party scrapes into parliament, sort of potentially avoiding a reckoning and avoiding responsibility for some of the leadership. I do want to sort of bracket that by saying that I, I don't want to attribute this result necessarily to individuals, to particular individuals, or even to a particular current within the party. But I do think there are um, people who have had more of a say in recent years than others and there are ideas that have been prevalent within the party and we're seeing the results of that now and I think it's it's fair to say that um, those who have contributed most to this result should be held accountable for it uh, the most as well. I think the problem with the result that we got now is that people um, 
have enough plausible deniability to read whatever they want to read into it. And um, not necessarily, um, I don't think the institutional change that's needed will necessarily come about as a, as a result of this. I think the result isn't bad enough. And I think, well, no, the result is bad enough, I think, in any other party. I mean, if you look at the way the CDU is dealing with Armin Laschet, uh, I mean, his career is over and everyone knows it. Um, I think in any other political party in Germany, any other major political party, this result would be the end of a lot of political careers. Uh, the reason why it's not in Die Linke is for a number of reasons that have to do with internal party culture um, and also just the balance of uh, interests within the party. I think what Die Linke has never developed, what all of the other parties have had historically and have now, is a real center of power, right? So um, the Linke has been a fragile coalition between different fairly disparate social groups and more important groups of politicians from very different backgrounds. Um, and so everyone's kind of scared to rock the boat lest they be the ones who tip overboard, uh, which I think is one of the reasons why Die Linke has persisted uh, over nearly a decade now in this kind of uh, tense ceasefire between different camps that is sometimes a bit hotter than other times, but there's never really been the consolidation into one unified party. And I think if you look at like what's coming out of the party leadership now in terms of explanations... No one's saying Zara Wagenknecht's name. Well, that's not true. Some people are saying Zara Wagenknecht's name, but everyone is kind of pointing towards Zara Wagenknecht using, you know, kind of euphemisms like the the Führstimmigkeit, like the multiple voices of the party or the lack of a clear face, like, you know, towards the public. And there are some obvious, I mean, obviously, Zara Wagenknecht published a book in April that is basically 250 pages of saying why you shouldn't vote for Die Linke. She has some pretty good points in it, but she also uh, takes some pretty crude um, shortcuts uh, in several parts of the book. And obviously, she's upset a lot of left-wing, dyed-in-the-wool Linka supporters and what she calls lifestyle leftists. And I mean, so I would say, like, obviously, there is some truth to the narrative or that uh, Zara Von Connect is maybe part of the reason uh, for the defeat. But what it papers over is the fact that Zara Von Knecht I mean, she stepped down from the uh, fraction leadership or speaker position two years ago, a year and a half ago, and her and her supporters don't actually have that much control over the party. They have control over parts of the parliamentary group, and they have states where they're strong. But the party, the party apparatus, has basically been run by the same people for nearly a decade now. And those are the people who I think will be most loudly denouncing Zara Wagenknecht and Zara Wagenknecht's complicity uh, for the party's disastrous result. Also because, you know, it's uncomfortable to talk about the fact that maybe you're also part of the reason that the party uh, has not done so well. And if you look at at least the debate in Berlin, which is what I have followed most closely, um, uh, but also the debate in, in among Wagenknecht supporters, Wagenknecht supporters are basically saying, see, this proves the course of the party towards gender-inclusive language and dealing with all of these cultural topics and caring too much about the climate. I'm obviously, I'm being very, um, uh, you know, I'm unfairly, uh, you know, zuspitzing their positions, but Wagenknecht supporters are, are taking or, inter or interpreting the defeat as confirmation of their position and their opponents are doing the exact same thing. So if you listen to the people in Berlin, sort of the, you know, the kind of the movementist people, uh, as they would call themselves, they're saying, well, this is just proof 
that we need to do even more of what we're doing and get rid of Wagenknecht once and for all. So there are very few people on either side of the divide who are taking a deeper look, uh, at least so far. And I think that's also because all of them are partially to blame. Many of them might have careers riding on this, might uh, have spent so long in the party that it'd be very hard to find another job. And so there's, a, I think, along, among wide sections of the apparatus on all sides, there's real hesitancy to be brutally honest because brutal honesty would probably involve a degree of self-criticism. And at the same time, unlike in a party like the CDU or the Greens, uh, there is not a strong competing power faction in the wings waiting to exploit this opportunity to take over the party. So we are stuck in kind of an uneasy, uncomfortable uh, ceasefire situation that we've been in for basically since 2012, since the regional elections in Nordrhein-Westphalia, where Die Linke failed to reach 5%. And for the first time, Die Linke's kind of constant ascent that had been going on since 2005 um, ground to a halt. And we've basically been in that situation for a decade now. Yeah, that that's great. Um, I think it's a, it's a it's a good overview of these these dynamics around this like one individual. And I mean, I would just add that for Zara Wagenknecht, like you say, you know, she doesn't have that much influence over the party, but she is one of, if not the main kind of media representation of the party. So I think that is. Um, that's one factor, and it, she she's very much associated with it in the public mind, which which becomes a pretty significant factor, I think. Would you guys agree? Oh yeah, I mean, her book was a bestseller for like two months straight. I mean, she definitely yeah. influences the public's perception of the party much more than most of the leading politicians. Absolutely, no doubt. Which is also one of the reasons the party can't really afford to get rid of her, and it puts her in a position of incredible power over a party that she really doesn't have that much democratic legitimacy to dictate terms to. Um, but she de facto, you know, she holds the scepter or whatever, just because she is, she's the only one who can write best-selling books. She's the only one who gets invited on a television every week. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, but I mean, in, in terms of actual, like, who has been voted by the, the membership and who runs the day-to-day operations, it's not her. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's politics, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, you guys, you know, elaborated well on kind of her position, I guess, you know, to, to any American listeners, I think you could kind of think of her as like the anti-woke left or something might be the closest American analog to what she advocates. Um, it was also very controversial when she founded Aufstehen, like, like Stand Up a few years ago that was sort of relied on a bit of like anti-migrant stereotypes. So that was also very divisive in the party. And that's sort of like the precursor to some of these issues that you're seeing now. Yeah, but I think it's also, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to defend uh, some of Wagenknecht's statements on migration, but I think it's also reflective of the weirdness of the German left that really, I mean, what Wagenknecht does, and I think that's what frustrates me the most about her, is she plays with fire rhetorically, right? She likes to say ambiguous things that could maybe appeal to right-wing voters, and she likes to say it in a way so that it's really hard to pin her down. But in terms of her actual policy positions, she is on the same page as Bernie Sanders and really most left-wing Democrats in the United States and most social Democrats around Europe. I think it's a specific, and I mean, this is a product of decades of developments on the German left, but it's a specific quirk of the German left that there is this insistence on 
open borders immediately and anything under that is reactionary, which creates a situation in which Zaravankanech is painted as being right-wing by people who also think Bernie Sanders is fantastic. But Bernie Sanders has a very similar position on open borders. What Bernie Sanders doesn't do, and I think that's where he's much better in the Wagenknecht, is he doesn't play with that rhetoric. Bernie Sanders always has a progressive, a optimistic, a hopeful, an inclusive rhetoric. Even if in strictly policy terms, he's really, I mean, he's to the right uh, of Wagenknecht in some ways. But Wagenknecht has this weird way of playing in the gray areas rhetorically that I think really upsets a lot of people on the left, but is also one of the reasons why she can speak to a much larger audience than a lot of uh, politicians on the left. Um, I, I would like to maybe add two points, one of which is I think in, in when we started a conversation, you said something like in, in reference to Die Linke, return to its traditional working class base. And I think... You, you, I think you do have to qualify that a little bit because, I mean, it's a party that was founded between 2005 and 2007. Um, so it's, it's not like it has a decades long tradition and voter base. And I've seen, definitely seen sort of the, the, the predominant opinion seems to be particularly, um, among sort of the more movementist wing of the party that we were never a working class party and we shouldn't pretend we ever were. I think what that elides is that the voters of the PDS, that's the, um, yeah, the, the continuity, uh, party that took over from the, um, East, East German State Socialist Party, which eventually merged with a West German party that was more based in the labor movement to form Die Linke in 2007. And their membership was pretty, um, mixed. And, uh, but they did, get significant working class support in the East in areas that were badly affected by unemployment and so forth. So there was a certain economic protest vote component that was part of the um, PDF's support, uh, PDS's support. Um, I think it's also important to keep in mind that the uh, WASG, which was the other, the West German party based in the labor movement, um, explicitly understood itself as uh, a party of left social democracy and of the labor uh, movement and had very strong t working class roots and ties. So um, the, the new identity that the party took on after that um, diverged from that relatively quickly. I mean, as Lauren mentioned, that process was well underway already by 2012. But it's not entirely true either to say that was this was never a working class party or never a party that at least aspired to attract significant working class support. And in, on a federal level for a while, they got quite respectable results uh, among working class voters, even in the West. Um, it was never truly a mass party of the working class. Um, but it's definitely lost ground in that area. I think that's that's unquestionable. The other aspect, I think, is that people like Sava Wagenknecht, as well as I think a lot of people in the more movementist wing of the party, operate with particular stereotypes, what they believe the working class is like or should be like, or what's the sort of good section of the working class that we should appeal to. As, as opposed to the undeserving part of the working class that we shouldn't care about. So 
um, for Wagenknecht, that's older voters, ethnically German, um, that are, um, yeah, that are downwardly mobile for, for the more movementist wing. It's, you know, younger working class voters, maybe with a migrant background in cities, possibly more, um, educated voters, possibly voters in the service sector. Um, in the care sector and so forth, but um, there's really no admission that um, what a if you want to have a successful working class party, which of relevant size and importance, then you need to have a strategy that can appeal really across these divides. So everybody kind of pays lip service to this idea of bridging divides, but I don't really see either one of these factions or any faction really in the party actually willing to do that and come up with a strategy that, that will accomplish precisely that. And I mean, the, the movementist part of the party likes to claim that the party has a lot of appeal with kind of, you know, younger service workers of, um, of a migrant background and so forth. Uh, if you look at uh, the electoral numbers, that's not really borne out. So I have an example. Um, let's leave East Germany aside for a second. Let's just uh, look at West Germany. So I picked sort of exemplary as, as an, uh, I picked as an example two cities um, that are very diverse and very working class. One is in the north, um, Gelsenkirchen, and one is in the south, Mannheim. Uh, Gelsenkirchen has 17% uh, of the population with a uh, foreign citizenship. Of course, these people don't vote, but it's a good proxy for how diverse this town is or the city is. Mannheim, it's even higher, uh, has 25% of people who live there don't have German citizenship. And they're both um, relatively poor. Um, Gelsenkirchen is, for German uh, purposes absolutely poor and Mannheim is relatively poor given the area of the country that it's in. So in Gelsenkirchen, Die Linke got 3.5% of the vote, so almost 1.5% less than its already miserable national results. And in Mannheim, Die Linke got 5.0%, so just 0.1% higher than its national average. So if this theory was true that, you know, Die Linke is really the party of the new urban diverse working class, um, it should have landslide results in these two towns because that's precisely the people we're ostensibly talking about. But the Linke does not appeal to these people and in places like Gelsenkirchen, um, it even does well below average. On the other hand, there there's um, examples from wealthy university towns with large student populations, which are Decidedly not working class, um, places like Tübingen or Freiburg. I mean, every town has poorer areas and richer areas, but these are not by any stretch of the imagination deprived areas or anything like that. They have small working class communities in them, if, if anything. And, uh, so Tübingen and Freiburg both have 13.8% of the population who doesn't have a German passport. And they're, in these university towns, both in the south, uh, Die Linke got 8.4% in both of these places. And it's even higher in a town like Marburg, which is kind of in the center of the country, 
There the rate of non-German citizens is 12%, another university town, and there the Linke got 10.3%. So, you know, it's it's okay to do well with students and with academics. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But this claim that Die Linke is now the party of the new service sector precariat with a migrant background, it just doesn't stack up uh, if you look at the election results. Yeah, you mentioned some of these like specifics. Where do you see Linke's social base generally? Like what should it aim for? Which voters should it target, I guess? Yeah, I mean, in, in Germany, like in most Western democracies, or even most democracies these days, there's huge sections of working class non-voters, um, both in um, in the manufacturing sector and in the service sector. And I'm not saying it's easy to reach these people. It's not. It's very, very difficult. We've seen this with uh, Jeremy Corbyn. We've seen this with Bernie Sanders. They both, to an extent, banked on um, trying to reach out to these voters and were pretty successful at it for a while. And then other forces came into play and their success kind of waned in these areas. But my argument is, who else is going to do that? Because if you're just the party of academics and activists and you're a little bit more radical than the Greens, then you're either not radical enough for some people or most of these people will just end up voting for the Greens anyway. The Greens won all of these university towns that I just mentioned by pretty sizable margins. I think it's also, I mean, obviously you have to talk about class. What what section of the class or what class do you want to recruit or win or whatever? But I think one of the one of the problems in the way that it's talked about in Dilenka is that that's, that's literally sometimes how it's discussed. Like what kind of workers should we appeal to? Like, should we appeal to nurses or should we appeal to like people of color who uh, clean hotels? It's this weird kind of like, uh, like Wunschfabrik uh, kind of thinking where you just kind of conjure up the social group that you would like your party to represent. And then you say, I represent you now. Like uh, on, on election night, there was a very funny tweet uh, I can't remember who it was now, but an American from Justice Democrats. It was a thread about Delinka's defeat, and this uh, organizer from Justice Democrats uh, related an anecdote where he was meeting with some leaders of Delinka. He didn't name any names, but he was meeting with some members of Delinka, and he said the person from Delinka asked, "How do you go and canvass in the United States?" And he told him, and then he asked, "How do you canvass in Germany?" And this anonymous leader of Delinka said, "Hello, I am from Delinka. Are you a member of the Precariat?" And that's not how normal people talk. And normal people also don't think about themselves in racialized, classicized terms. You know what I mean? Like the, and that's, I think, one of the problems with, you know, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't want to, you know, paint some bogeyman of identity politics on the wall. But I think one problem in the way that the left talks about identity and oppression is that most people don't think about themselves in those terms. So if you want to think about how are you going to reach the working class, quote unquote, I think the question has to be, for Delink, it would have to be, what kind of message can appeal to people who feel disenfranchised? And I think that's where uh, Delinka has really struggled for the last 10 years because Delinka, and this election I think is a great example, 
if you look at the last few weeks, of, especially the last few weeks of the campaign, when uh, uh, the main kind of message coming from Dilinka was, if you want a progressive coalition government, the only guarantee that it will really be progressive is if Dilinka is in the government. Now, I want a progressive coalition government. Everyone in Dilinka, except for a small minority of Trotskyists and anarchists, wants Dilinka to be in government. The problem is most of the people who traditionally vote us vote for us have not fought in those terms. Historically, Dilinka was most successful when voting for Dilinka was a middle finger at the establishment, right? And obviously, that is no long-term strategy to just be a middle finger to the establishment. But that kind of messaging worked very well. And ever since the party has abandoned that messaging for various reasons, not all of which were wrong, it has not been able to find its niche in the political landscape. And I think that's, you know, if you look at our classical base of frustrated social democrats, uh, declassed former East German bureaucrats, and for lack of a better term, declassed, you know, declassed East Germans, whether you want to call them like just, you know, long-term unemployed or whatever, that traditionally was our base. And those are generally not people who are thinking on too high of a level about how can I maximize the chances of getting a red, red, green progressive reform government. That's not, that's not how most people, period, think about voting. And it's definitely not how Dilinka's uh, base has thought historically about voting. And we have not, and I say we, because I am a member, uh, even if I have not been very active uh, recently, we have not found a way to bridge that gap, to somehow want to govern, and I think that any left-wing party has to want to govern, um, because I don't believe in any kind of revolutionary, insurrectionary scenario, but how to do that without abandoning your credibility and abandoning your protest potential. And that's, uh, the Linka has not been able to do that, and instead has these very weird, stilted debates about which kind of worker do we want to appeal to, uh, which uh, help nobody, and least of all the workers who we want to represent. Yeah, no, I think that I think that really nails it. Like, I mean, it, it it almost ties back to this problem of like representing academics so much is the people who are making some of these decisions think, think, oh, everyone who votes here is going to be like playing this sort of strategic game. And it's like, like you said, people don't think of themselves in explicitly like class or racialized terms in most cases, unless they've really been subject to these, you know, university courses and analysis and like, you know, I obviously am someone that, that enjoys writing and reading this type of analysis, you know, in, in outlets like Jacobin, for example. But, you know, like you like you allude to, it's just not it's not going to appeal to people like the term precariat, as you point out, is like that's a very specific type of person knows what that means. And so, yeah, trying to rely, <laughs> right. trying to rely on that on the doorstep is like it's pretty silly. Like a delivery driver with a master's degree. He's going to get it. And I know there are some people on the left who think that's the future of the labor movement, but we're really talking about of a fraction of a fraction. Of there a are fraction a lot of those of guys. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are in a few districts of Berlin and Hamburg. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, you know, I think that's one of the bigger. Yeah, and that's, I think that's another, a bigger problem that is not just Dilinka. That's, I think, our generation of the left as a whole. Um, and I think that, that, that is just as true, for example, like the young people around Jeremy Corbyn a few years ago, a lot of the young people around Bernie Sanders, any new left party is after 40 years of neoliberalism, and Germany is an exception, and that Germany still has 20% trade union coverage and very strong trade unions that 
that employers are still quite frightened of in many industries. This is not the case in most of the Western world. Um, but with the pacification of labor uh, and sort of the disappearance of labor as a, a powerful social block and a political actor, politics is the domain of middle class people like, I mean, like me. I'm not going to speak for you guys, but at least for me, yeah, it's the domain of people like me who grew up reading books and doing well in school and then went to college and always kind of saw themselves as like an active participant in society. Uh, and a lot of us have the tendency, just like any human being, you tend to think that the people around you are the majority or represent the average. And so I think there's a lot of people on the left who are much more limited in their perception of society than they think. Uh, you know, they think that their experience in Berlin or their experience in Brooklyn is somehow representative for society as a whole when you, you, most of the time it's not. Um, and that's why, of course, Die Linke, you know, will do well in uh, very multicultural and gentrifying districts of Berlin where you have, they're literally just like magnets for like liberal arts students from all over Germany. Of course, you're going to get 20% for Die Linke in a neighborhood like that. But that doesn't tell you anything about how to win an election in the suburbs or in the countryside or in a place like Chemnitz, uh, where there is no future and so no one is moving there. And that's, I think, a big problem in the debate in Die Linke is you have these people on the one side and then you have the kind of like the Wagenknecht vision on the other side, which has a couple of kernels of truth, uh, particularly in terms of like what is the lifestyle left and what sets them apart from like a traditional working class movement. She has some valid criticisms there, but is also oriented towards a very retrograde idea of what class politics is that's very much based on like a 30-year experience uh, from the 20th century that can't be reproduced. Yeah. And that's, I think that's why it's so, it's, fr it's frustrating for everyone involved because uh, everyone's kind of banging their heads against the wall and there are very few, I mean, it's not, there are some voices of reason, but both sides are operating, like Alex said, with their own kind of, idealizations of what what the left should do and what the class looks like when really neither of them are really true right yeah it's like the the working class is neither all you know really big white guys in a factory nor multicultural groups of people with phds yeah. <laughs> doing driving for exactly. gorillas or something like yeah and especially in german there still are quite a lot of white guys in factories like it's not you know yeah, i mean i'm not saying that white guys in factories in fact, yeah there's <laughs> a lot of non-white women south, in factories where I'm too. From. like you i've worked in factories in the south of germany and it, this is not the white working class um i think like easily 60 percent of my colleagues were of some sort of migration background. That is what the working class, the industrial working class in the West and particularly in the South looks like. Um, so this is another, this is another one of these, I don't want to call it ideas. This is another one of these memes that people throw around and just that they're not getting us nowhere. And I also want to dispel another one of these, uh, of the talking points of the movementist wing, which is about these three districts um, that they won. And just, I, I don't think you meant to say that, Lauren, but some people are saying, oh, you know, but these three districts, this is precisely, you know, like the young urban precariat and they got us elected. So one of the districts is uh, Gregor Gysi's district. It's in the very southeast of Berlin. This is not an area where a lot of influx of the young ur urban working class happens. These are predominantly older East German voters or, and just working class voters in general who live there. Um, and he won his district 
pretty handily, but all three of the districts um, on the party list vote went to um, another party. The two districts in Berlin went to the SPD, and I believe the district in Leipzig went to the Greens on the party list vote. So not on the first past the post vote That's for the, the local the, candidate. The Zeitstimme, the second vote, just for yeah. for yeah. people that aren't super familiar. Yeah, the other district in Berlin uh, is Gesine Lurch's district. I think she's been in that district since 1994. It's since been withdrawn, but it, it has a little bit of gentrification around the edges, but it's also primarily um, still a, I would say, working class to lower middle class um, East Berlin um, old GDR district. And she is, she is from the PDS. She is uh, very much in that tradition. And she's, she's a locally popular MP, and she won the district on that basis, not on the basis of an influx of the new precariat or anything like that. Uh, Sören Pellmann's district in Leipzig is kind of like that. It is uh, gentrifying pretty rapidly. Um, but he doesn't represent that wing of the party. Um, there was an interview with him, and uh, he is. He, I think he's a pretty conciliatory guy. He's he's not extreme in either direction, but he did invite Sarah Wagenknecht to campaign with him in his district, and um, I think the Zeit did an interview with him and tried to pin him down on that and asked him, "Do you think this hurt the party?" And he said, "In my." A very diverse district in Leipzig, so there's some areas that are still dominated by older voters um, that still remember uh, the GDR. There's a lot of gentrifying uh, areas in the district. Um, I I got hundreds of positive um, responses to me campaigning with Wagenknecht, and I think he said like two negative ones. So um, this also just doesn't stand up. These are not three districts where, you know, the movementist particular idealization of the working class lives either. Um, because I've, I've also seen that idea thrown around. And regardless, they are not safe districts for the Linke and the Linke can't rely on winning them um, in the future as an ele- electoral strategy. That's, that won't work. Moving on to some of the proximate causes of this election disaster, you know, there there have been a whole slew of election postmortems. People have attributed the left's fall to both the, you know, short term factors as well as these more structural issues that you guys have talked about. And so I've seen, you know, an argument, you know, maybe this was strategic voting to stop Laschet. So people were voting for like the SPD because it looked like Schultz of the SPD was the best move to stop the CDU's Armin Laschet. Or also that the party might have moved a little too much to the center or conceded ground, for example, on NATO, because the Greens and the SPD were saying, you know, well, we need we need Delinka to support NATO, which traditionally doesn't. We need them to support NATO as a precondition of any potential coalition, which would be the red, red, green coalition that, you know, sort of the best hope for a, a progressive government in Germany. And so there was a bit of like mealy mouth language about that, you know, sort of sort of trying to trying to split the difference there. And, you know, I've I've heard that kind of described as, as one of these issues um, and, and, you know, the, the party has a hard time for, forsaking its opposition to NATO, which I understand based on its history. 
But these are pretty like short term kinds of things um, that to me could seem a bit like cope because like there are these longer structural issues that you guys are talking about. And so do you think we can explain a good amount of this result through these kind of short term tactical decisions? Or do you think it really comes down to a lot of these longer term structural things? I think that it's, I mean, it's both. But uh, uh, I think that I think 6% would have been possible uh, had the party not moved towards the center. And I mean, obviously, moving towards the center, an expression like that is relative. Uh, the Linka didn't race to the center. It didn't outflank the SPD or the Greens to the right. But I think by going all in on the red-red-green perspective um, and failing to capitalize at all uh, on the disastrous situation in Afghanistan, the party did uh, give away more than it um, would have had to. I am one of the, I think I'm a minority, I think I'm a pretty small minority of people who thinks that at least tactically, it would have been smart to vote, at least to all vote with a unified voice on the Afghanistan rescue mission. Uh, I tend to think it would have even been smart uh, just in terms of maximizing attention and votes to vote no, because I, for so for I don't know less listeners who don't know, um, the Linka is the only party in parliament that's been opposed to the war in Afghanistan since two thousand one. Uh, every other party in parliament has supported it. Um, I've, not the IFD, but the IFD is too new to have you know been around back then. And when it came time to rescue uh, you know German citizens and people who worked for the German government in Kabul. Um, uh, when the 20-year farce of building a democracy collapsed in front of everyone's eyes, Die Linke could not agree on a unified line, and so they uh, they decided or they agreed to to uh, abstain from the vote, but they didn't even manage to assert that in the fraction. So a number of MPs did vote uh, no, and a number of MPs voted yes, which I think was the worst of all possible outcomes because it very shortly before the elections, once again, solidified this vision or this idea that Die Linke is a zerstrittener Haufen. So just like, a, you know, a bunch of uh, quarreling uh, kids who can't uh, decide what they think and to which there's some truth. I think uh, voting no, because obviously we all knew that the uh, mission was going to happen anyway. And that's the thing with all of these symbolic votes where the center left demands um, you know, a pound of flesh from the Dilinka to even entertain discussing a government with them, which they then never discuss, and it never happens anyway, is that uh, it's you know it's 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 chipping away at Dilinka's left wing profile bit for bit to neutralize them in the party landscape to not be a threat to the SPD, but it ended up meaning that Dilinka spent twenty years upholding the only morally ethically correct position on the war in Afghanistan, and got absolutely zero mileage out of it. And there's a wing of the party that says we need to abandon our opposition to NATO and adopt a more like modern, flexible foreign policy position on foreign deployments because that's why a lot of people don't vote for us because they think that we're like friends with dictators and friends with Putin and uh, you know whatnot. And I just think electorally, I don't think that's accurate. I think there were more people. I think there are more voters who detested that war and detested the way that the German political establishment continued with it for 20 years despite the popular opposition, 
who would have voted for us for maintaining a principled stance in Afghanistan. And instead, the party fumbled the ball entirely and had no coherent narrative around Afghanistan whatsoever. And then even, frankly, kind of took the blame. Like it got to a point where all yeah. the other parties were acting like the war in Afghanistan was Delinka's fault. And that, I think, speaks to a, both a huge tactical blunder, but also a real inability uh, by the party to assert their own narrative over the last right. It was this really um, perverse decade. situation, sure. right? Where the only yeah, party yeah, that had the correct was... opinion about the war, rather than kind of cashing in electorally at the end of that, when everyone realized they were right after 20 years, all of a sudden right. they end up taking the blame. I think you saw something similar in the US actually, where it's like, all of these people that had been wrong for two decades now are blaming the end game on people who had the correct opinion, but they're blaming them for not having like believed hard enough or tried hard enough. And so right. it's, right. It, it's very, yeah, it's very difficult to see that. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's you're right on the broader foreign policy issue in NATO. Cause you look at polls of, of German voters and what they think about like American troop deployments in Germany, like it's not very popular. Um, there's a very little willingness to actually go with like the core of NATO, which is their Article 5, saying an attack against one is an attack against all. Like Germans do not want to send the Bundeswehr in to like get killed by the Russians to save like Tallinn or whatever. Like it's just there's no appetite for it. Yeah. And and so, yeah, this idea that like all six parties in the Bundestag need to support these principles that are actually not supported by a huge portion of the German population to me is, is like pretty foolish. I also think that there are some, you know, like, like the party just has bad PR, you know I mean? There are plenty of superficial changes the party could make that I think would give it an extra percent or two, you know, like get a new design agency, have better posters, have better messaging. Yeah. Uh, not the media the, mark look. Yeah. The social media presence. There are all kinds of things that money could fix. But, and I mean, because that's, you know, the question you asked, none of that will take care of the structural issue, which is the dying out of its original social base. And so far, the inability to colonize a new one. Um, yeah. Money alone can't solve that problem. But you can at least stop, you know, like tripping yourself up. Yeah, the, the old base has died and the new is waiting to be born, I guess we could say. Um, <laughs> the, the new base has already been born. They just don't know they're the base. So right, we're, right. We're kind of not, not born electorally. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a special kind of dysfunction to be the only pacifist, anti-imperialist party and then have to blame for a war pinned on you, basically. I mean, it's a hostile media environment as it is for all left parties. But with a little bit better internal discipline and with some talented people on the top who've, you know, have been promoted based based on ability and who've received the right kind of, yeah, who are trained cadres and, and understand what they're doing. Um, this could have been an easy win for Die Linke. I mean, yeah. Afghanistan going down like that. Um, and instead, it, it hurt the party. And that can't happen. Like, you, it, it, this, that's such an unforced error and really bespeaks volumes of how incapable the party in its current state is to, to seize on opportunities like that. Right, for something predictable that you could have seen coming to not have a kind of contingency plan in place for like, this is how well, we deal with that, that issue and this Delink's is how we defense, benefit. defense, they have been seeing coming. Like, it was clear to everyone that Afghanistan was going to 
fall apart sooner or later. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean is they could see it coming and then not having a strategy to win from that electorally is like, is really damning. And so with this is like, I think it's one important issue with like its position relative to the other parties. And I mean, uh, with, with basically like the West German half of this, like you said, um, Alex, the WASG, you know, merging with the PDS to form modern D Linka and like a big, a big creation of that Western half, the WASG was, was the hot sphere reforms, of course, like from the SPD. So this is like a significant amount of the party splintered off from the SPD because it moved so far to the right under Gerhard Schröder. And so like, there's this kind of contested relationship with the SPD, right? Like, like what can D-Link's role, especially in relation to that party, I think, because of the kind of historical ties there. I mean, do people want a real like left-wing protest party? As Lauren, you said, like just giving a middle finger, you know, isn't isn't a great basis to a party. But if the SPD moves slightly to the left, which I guess you could say vaguely they did this time around, does that suck up all the space for D-Linka? Like, how can it position itself? in terms of policy positions relative relative to the SPD in particular, I think it's also a bit relevant to the Greens because especially for that, um, like the university town type base, like they can't really afford to just be a more radical Greens. And so they're like, they're caught in this weird position, right? Where they like, they want to govern. And so they need to not deviate too far from these parties. But then if they get too close, what's the point? And so like, where where do they like where can they fit in on the spectrum that that will make them relevant and yet still appealing well i think i mean i think it's uh it is very difficult in the current situation because the spd has moved to the left at least on a cosmetic level but not only also in terms of some political substance which does suck up some of at least some of the air for delinka but what i think what Dilinka can still do, and what it has done historically, and that's when it's been strongest, is appeal to the, frankly, gigantic low-wage sector in Germany, right? To really try to cast herself as the party of the downtrodden, of the lower 10, 15% of society, who at least you know now, and frankly, thanks to Dilinka's presence in parliament, have a minimum wage. You know, maybe a lot of people who don't live in Germany don't know that, but Germany's minimum wage is only like six years old. Uh, maybe not even that. And it's really only there because starting in 2005, you had a socialist party in parliament demanding a minimum wage. Now, obviously, that has not paid off for Dilinka because most voters aren't thinking in terms of like, you know, 20 year political rhythms. But the party, I think, still has a functional role to play as the representative of these kinds of people, of the people who are making eight euros an hour, who can barely make ends meet, many of whom live in the East, many of whom live in rural areas. Uh, uh, where uh, public transportation is being cut, where life is getting harder. Um, But I do think that the party's language is increasingly shaped by its middle-class university town base that you've been describing. And I think it's possible to combine those two, right? Like I think you can both attract kind of educated left-wing people who are largely left-wing for intellectual reasons or moral reasons and sort of the underclass and the disenfranchised. But um, it really matters how you try to talk to them and how you try to uh, pitch your party's message. And that's where I think that's where I think D-Link really has to go back to square one and do their homework. Yeah, I'd love to talk a bit more about like the party's public image. 
Um, I think we've touched on it a bit throughout, but what reputation does Dilinka have currently? Like, what does the party represent to, you know, the vast swaths of the German population? Yeah, and I guess just to add to that, does the does the communist, the like many steps removed sort of communist heritage, how much influence do you think that has scaring people away in the public perception? Because like I've heard that from some people. Uh, maybe our expert from southern Germany should uh, <laughs> deploy his cultural deep deep reservoirs and cultural knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't have any good data really. I mean, it's you can poll people on, you know, and they'll give you reasons. Whether those are the reasons is another question. I do have we'll a take personal speculation. You can you can yeah, use anecdotes. I have and, a personal uh, <laughs> anecdote, um, which is. Um, so my uh, great aunt, my grandpa's sister, uh, she was a high school teacher, lifelong CDU voter, pretty much, except for the very centrist uh, Helmut Schmidt, who was an SPD chancellor in the early 80s, late 70s. Um, she liked him, but otherwise she also always voted CDU. And I think in 2009, she all of a sudden apropos of nothing, told me um, I'm voting for Die Linke because they're against war and I don't ever want to see war again. And I don't want you to either. And it didn't bother her at that moment in time that this was a party that was, as part of its heritage, had the East German Communist uh, state, state party. I think it's what's salient to people at particular points in time. And I think the other weaknesses that we've described make it possible for the Linkus political enemies to keep this issue alive and keep it as a salient point in, uh, in people's minds. I think um, uh, on that question, uh, somebody who made a really good point, uh, Janis Ehling, who... Uh, he used to work for Bernd Rixinger, who used to be the leader of the party. Uh, he made a really good point that um, in the last 10 years, with the rise of the AFD, the uh, Die Linke and its sort of East German past has really been destigmatized in the media. Uh, and he made, I think, a convincing argument that uh, as uh, counterintuitive as it might sound, the, the East Germany bashing um, was actually always very uh, good for Die Linke. Um, like the investigations into Stasi ties or whatever, it meant that Die Linke was always in the media and it was always in the media as kind of like public enemy number one, which attracted a certain kind of disenfranchised voter. And in fact, as the stigma around Die Linke has declined, it's also lost some of that oppositional aura. Yeah, I really think sort of going forward, um, Die Linke should adopt the kind of nuanced approach that they've been that they have adopted to East Germany, really, you know, defend people's um, people's biographies, people's personal achievements, societal achievements, without necessarily defending the political system. Um, as such, um, I also think you need a strategy for all of Germany because um, purely playing on East-West divides um, is also insufficient. It seems like it's it's already on their radar. I mean, Barch was expressing concern about the party's um, Ostkompetenz, like East competence, saying all of this um, 
what we've been talking about, Die Linke losing its uh, protest character. And so I think, but like you say, Alex, like that's just part of the issue. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, and it's already on their radar. It's already something they can point to and know that they're doing wrong. Yeah. I do want to go back to the Søren Pellmann interview um, in Sight where he says Die Linke needs to pull itself together. Um, Ted, did you have like a quote from there that you wanted to focus on? Yeah, definitely. So I thought, I thought this was interesting. What he said, I mean, he, well, this, this ties into two things. So like one, are there certain lessons that we can draw from the past of D-Link's past results? You know, historically they've basically just flirted with the 10% mark I think it was first eight, eight point seven in 05, 11.9 in 09, eight point six in twenty thirteen, and then nine point two in twenty seventeen before the big fall in this past election. And so, were there specific campaign strategies that worked in those elections, or was a lot of the success due to a bit more of the national climate? Um, for example, like the obvious thing that you would think in 2009, that's right after the global financial crisis. So maybe a, a left party just had more appeal at that time. And so, yeah, if you could first talk a bit, if you if you think that this, these are just sort of like the ebbs and flows of the news cycle and history that are causing this, or if there's specific actual electoral actions. And then I think some of the the specific like keys to success that uh, Zoran Pelman discussed like might play into that in terms of what the party can actually do in the future to succeed. I think that's really hard to say. Like um, the thing with German politics is like they don't really campaign. You know, like I I did an internship with the Linka in two thousand nine uh, during that election where we got eleven point nine percent. Um, uh, and I just come, uh, back from Chicago, uh, where I had watched, watched the Obama campaign. I was already too sectarian and ultra left back then to participate, but, you know, I'd kind of witnessed this like if a insane two year spectacle where billions of dollars are dumped into an endless hole and every person gets called 20 times, um, and then I came to Germany and it was like, oh, yeah, it's July. I guess we should hang up some posters. Uh, and would like, like, you'd be like, I'd be like sent out to like, you know, Augsburg or Emden or some other weird German town and like be debating with party members that like when you do a stand for your candidate, you should try to talk to people and that was kind of like a point of tension was like do we want to bother people or they can choose to come and talk to us so it's not like any german parties really have some kind of interesting campaign tactics that they're experimenting with they're like are there different you know organizing styles they're using it's it's basically just put up the posters hand out whistles and candy or whatever i don't know keychains and lighters i always like the link of lighters because they said via haben feuer Thought that was pretty cool, um, but uh, I don't think that there's really any campaign tactics to be evaluated. I do think you can talk about the messaging and the candidates themselves. I think 2009 and 2005 were both very ideal situations because you had a general left-wing protesty attitude in society. You had the war in Iraq. You had 
financial crisis, like you mentioned, even though its impact in Germany was not nearly as bad or as big as um, certainly Die Linke thought it would be at the time and as it was in the rest of Europe, um, you also had, uh, people forget about it now, but you actually had around that time, you had a big student movement against tuition fees um, uh, because some German states had the audacity to charge 500 euro a semester for a college degree and it launched like a, just a massive wave of outrage and all of those things really helped, uh, really helped Die Linke in sort of creating like a, a Grundstimmung, you know, like a basic kind of background noise in favor of left-wing politics. And then on top of that, you have Gregor Gysi, Oscar Lafontaine, Zara Wagenknecht, also people who I mean, people maybe don't really remember him as much anymore, but people like Lothar Bisky, who was the leader of Die Linke in Brandenburg until he passed away, I think, in 2011, who was never really a national figure, but was very much a, a political uh, uh, heavyweight in his state and um, just of a much higher caliber than uh, any of the politicians we have today, simply because they came from the 20th century and there were more interesting things happening in the 20th century and it created a different kind of politician than um, than we have today. So I think all of those things, uh, all of those factors were much more important than any specific thing that Die Linke consciously did or didn't do. But, and that's maybe the difference to now, there was a very clear protest party orientation. I mean, the Die Linke has always done best when it oriented itself towards being a protest party. Uh, obviously, context, historical factors had something to do with it. But the, the kind of middle finger the establishment attitude so far seems to be empirically the only, like, empir empirically verifiable uh, successful strategy, despite being very limited. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's correct. Um, and in terms of, you know, the, the two specific points from the Perlman interview um, that stood out to me is, A, he mentioned he, um, you know, he managed he managed to be present in the lives of his constituents. So um, he did a lot of, you know, local work in his constituency, helping people with every everyday problems, um, you know, advising them when they have trouble with the welfare office and so forth. But really more than that, really, you know, just having a real political presence in people's everyday lives. Yeah, I think he said, like, quoting his piece there, like translated, he said that, quote, it's about organizing social counseling appointments, opening doors at government offices, sending vaccination teams into precarious areas. And then to conclude, he was saying, you know, lately, there haven't been enough points of contact with the left, and quote, the use value is not there. Um, that's what people say, this has to change. And the left has to actually per be perceived as caring in the community again. Yeah. And the other point that he mentioned was that there's really he, he managed on a local level to have a unifying message and a unifying strategy for all relevant sections uh, of for all relevant groups of voters in his district, um, largely the working classes, but also students and so forth. So he managed to pull it off on a local level. And I think those two things are very much interrelated. So I think if you um, if you are more present in people's lives, it's not necessarily that it's only a good in itself. I, I would say it is, but it also automatically just provides more of a feedback mechanism. And, you, you know, you, 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 in conversation with people, you learn what do they actually care about, what, 
what is what's their thinking at politically, what issues do they care about, what issues uh, do they not care about necessarily so much. Um, and I think, you know, it, it that seems to go in the right direction as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely steps that he outlined that the D-Linka could take to project strength and kind of connect with local communities. Speaking of a more local level on um, the Berlin level to close out, I wanted to discuss the Deutsche Wohnen und Eignen campaign and this general disconnect between policies that voters support and the party they choose to vote for and their Zweitstimme. Um, I know Ines, now I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, Ines Schwerter uh, <laughs> wrote this piece about activists and, and how, how you, can't, uh, <laughs> you can't win with just activists. And I thought one of the points that really resonated is that Die Linke in Berlin chose to kind of integrate themselves into the campaign structure, like in this like signature collecting structure, which actually then makes the party seem small because they're not really like acting at this political level. They're not taking on the SPD while the SPD chooses to buy back um, apartments in need of uh, renovation at an exorbitant price. Like D-Linka cho chooses to kind of combine itself with the social movement. They're like subservient to the movement rather than the movement being a part of the party. They're just like little helpers with this with this thing. And it, it kind of like it ties into what you were saying, Lauren, in this piece you had earlier this year about the sort of fallacy of being like a party of the movements, right? Like, and if you're going to be a party of the movements, but you're just going to sort of be like assistance to the movement, it it really doesn't work. Well, I think also, I mean, obviously, Deutsche Wohnen and Co. Uh, and Eignen is a is fantastic. You know, it's always kind of it's tricky to then uh, be the guy or gal who afterwards is like, but, but I think it is important uh, to be you know be sober about what really happened. Um, I think it's a huge victory. I think it's. It's largely a, a propaganda victory, like until the city actually respects it and makes it happen, it's purely an ideological victory in that it establishes that a majority of Berliners are opposed to these, you know, uh, rent sharks. Uh, do you say that in English? Anyway, these uh, landlords, uh, these very greedy <laughs> landlords. I don't know if we say it, but it's a good term. Uh, I think we should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. But I've read some of the stuff that I've read, especially in English language left-wing media in the days since the result, but also the German media, make me feel like I live, well, I moved away from Berlin two weeks ago, but I was in Berlin until two weeks ago. And sometimes I feel like we're, we must have been seeing different realities because you got some of these articles coming out that basically say like, yeah, man, a million Berliners just said like, you know, they're ready to like burn it all down and seize private property. I don't think that's what happened. I think a majority of Berliners were presented with the proposition, do you think it would be good if all of this private housing belonged to the state the way it did when you were a kid and rent was a lot cheaper? And they said, yeah, I think that would be good. But no more and no less. Like the... The active core of people who organized uh, Deutsche Wohnen in Eignen did incredible work and certainly worked really, really, really hard. And I can understand why maybe 
then they don't appreciate people from outside pointing out the limitations, I would be annoyed in their position too. But at the end of the day, I don't think we're talking about more than a couple thousand people. And that's in a city of over 3 million. So I don't know, is that a movement? You know, like when I hear the word movement, if I think about like the civil rights movement, I'm thinking about tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people mobilizing in a sustained way over years and years and years. I don't know that that's really the case. It, if it is the case, it's only the case at Deutsche Wohnen. I don't know that there are any other big movements going on right now. I think we're still, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying in the beginning about the fact that politics is largely the domain of middle class people. We're still dealing with dedicated groups, but small groups of people who are able to make change in their communities because they work so hard. But we're not talking about mass movements. Um, and that's, I think... That's like a very uh, uncomfortable truth that a lot of people on the left don't want to hear because it means that our job is so much harder and we're so much further away from where we'd like to be. Um, but I don't know that there are really huge movements for the party to be organizing. I think that's in many ways a bit of an, bit of an illusion. I think we're still dealing with you know, a very talented vanguard that uh, really kicked ass over the last six months. But whether, for, you know, for example, if... I almost want to say when, but let's say if we get some kind of grand coalition government and they don't uh, stick to the referendum results, I don't know that we will see mass demonstrations and protest. We'll see demonstrations. They might even be pretty big for a while, but I don't know that you're going to be able to translate those hundred, those million votes into more than a few 10,000 people on the street, which is not the kind of pressure you'll need to really make it stick. Yeah, I mean, I, I really hope you're wrong, but I'm, I'm, it's really an open question as far as I'm concerned. Um, but it's, it was a fantastic result. It's like huge kudos to everybody involved. I wasn't. Um, but I think that the, what will become clear is, I think, in order to enact socialist or even left-wing social democratic policies, you need some sort of a um, foot in the state. It can't just all be extra-parliamentary and extra-governmental and activism-based and movement-based because the other side has has a longer lever in terms of structural power. Um, and you're not going to um, get a revolution in the global north probably ever. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I, I'd want that. So, um, yeah, you, you need some sort of democratic uh, platform and, and democratic movement to, to get into the state and to work the institutions of the state to your advantage. Um, like the Linke, I think, so it's correct to say that voters aren't necessarily read up on a lot of details a lot of times, but I, I think it's important to distinguish between not having a lot of information at ready at hand and being stupid. And voters are definitely not stupid. And they can pick up on dysfunction and on chaos and on incoherent messaging and so forth. And I think they don't see Die Linke as a party that's competent enough, whether at a protest, as a protest party or as a party of government, to actually deliver change in their lives. I mean, the outcome is kind of if you vote yes on End Eignen, but you put, give your Zweitstimme to the Greens in Berlin, 
they said from the beginning that they're just taking it as an indicator that something has to be done and what exactly that um, Mitte is, like what what um, approach they choose is up for debate. It doesn't have to be expropriation. And so I think that's where people kind of landed. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're going pretty long on this, um, but it's a great conversation. So thanks for joining, guys. Um, I would just say to close out, is there one, if you could just give like one thing that you would hope the party to do in the next, you know, in the coming months to try to set it on a little more stable footing? Like, yeah, just just like the top priority that you see it for the Linka to, to bounce back from this result and, and you know, just not not fade into irrelevance and also ideally, um, you know, become become a party back at its former strength or even higher. Sure, I'll. Um, I guess I'll, I'll go first. I think what the Linka needs to do. I mean, let's just take like the next three months. I think it's clear that, given the state within the party and the controversial, the controversy surrounding her as a person, Zara Wagenknecht, at least for now, cannot be the leading personality in the party. It would divide the party too deeply. But I think for the party's uh, survival, it needs to maintain the base that Zarbankenecht appeals to, which is why I would hope and pray that the party uh, leadership strikes some kind of deal with her, strikes some kind of pact to, you know, kind of like a non-aggression pact for the next year or two, uh, and that the party decide on three or four points that it's going to hammer home in every press conference and then really consolidate around uh, Janine Vissler, the new party co-chair, who frankly I think uh, uh, is the closest thing right now that we have to someone with that kind of a, a caliber. And if the party could uh, just solidify around one or two popular figures and decide on a few core messages that it's going to hammer home over the next four years, the party's not going to be in government. It's going to have to be an opposition party whether it likes it or not. And I think it needs to fully embrace that role and stop pussyfooting around with the idea that, oh, maybe we can somehow slip in and be the junior partner of some progressive coalition, but embrace the role that it's historically been uh, the most successful at and uh, get the adults in the room to stop uh, slinging mud at each other on television. Yeah, Janine has great message discipline. You got to give her that. Yeah, she looked she looked in she, that debate of seven. Like the she yeah. she really holds her own. Like doesn't get angry. Like delivers a message very clearly. I was hoping that would translate a little more into a, a higher vote share. But I think you're right. There's there's some future there of having like a younger person with a bit more charisma. Yeah, it's one of the few and far between examples of you know actually talent rising to the top. Um. I think they should definitely build on that. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily have a whole lot of, lot of prescriptions for sort of how the party should organize better its processes internally and so forth. But um, I think it's necessary that the party has a clearer conception of who it wants to appeal to, and that. Maybe, you know, everybody rolls their eyes when they hear that because the party has been talking about basically nothing else for the past five years. But I think it's it's important to actually have this discussion 
based on actual demographics and the actual numbers and the, the country as it actually looks like and not how you want it to look like and to have it in good faith and to also develop a conception of class that moves beyond these lazy stereotypes and that understands, you know, the working class is, is important because A, it's large, it is still very large and it is still a distinct class of its own in Germany and it has structural power. I mean, that is the basic insight of Marxism. I'm, I don't run around generally call myself, calling myself a Marxist, but I think that is correct. And um, I think it, there's real power in a polit being the political voice of the working class. I hope this isn't just something that, you know, that sounds good on paper, but that, that is impossible to achieve in, in the 21st century in, in the global north. I really don't think so. Maybe I'm wrong, but I still hold out hope. Um, I think that about wraps it up. Michelle, do you have any other questions or anything you want to ask? I have nothing further. That was so great talking to you both. Yeah, that was awesome. Thanks, guys. Uh, really appreciate you joining. Um, where can people find your work? Our uh, Jacobin, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll link to your pieces. I didn't. Um, we can share your Twitter handles too if you want. But I think my slightly yeah, art ranty article made the rounds. Even made it to the Latin American edition. So. Oh wow! <laughs> nice. Ha have a look about. And, yeah. Great. I read yeah. it in both languages just to make sure I. Uh, <laughs> Michelle's very cosmopolitan. Yeah. The kind of thorough preparation that I appreciate. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's what we do here.